From the makers of the Beyond series, introducing The Chelsea and Eric Show, bringing you more extraordinary stories from the world of triathlon. I'm Chelsea Sodaro, and you know, I still see myself as pretty new to the sport. I'm super curious, and I want to learn from the best. And I am Eric Gilsonen. You know, everyone is a triathlete, they just don't know it yet. Who is your hero in the sport of triathlon? The finish line, whether you're the first finisher or the final finisher, is where all people come together. We're all out there together. That's what I live for. This, this is the Chelsea is and the Eric Show. And welcome back to the Chelsea and Eric show. We are so happy to have you here and we cannot wait to share this episode with you. Yeah, we have certainly got another great interview on tap. But before we get to that, how have you been, Chelsea? I've been pretty good, Eric. You know, just kind of in the routine of training. Definitely been enjoying this podcast project that we've been working on. It's been a fun kind of creative outlet and distraction for me during this crazy year. And I just keep on getting like more and more excited once we get a new guest lined up. So, yeah, it'll be it'll be fun to see everyone's reaction to all the you know studs we have coming on the show. But uh, how was uh, I know that you went to 70.3 Arizona this past weekend. Were you announcing there? How did it go? Uh, it went quite well. Uh, you know, I wasn't there uh, on the uh, docket for Ironman as an announcer, but I was just there as a good partner, um, as a sponsor, uh, as a helper, just to help out Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Paul Huddle, the regional race director for Ironman, and Judy Stowers, the Tempe Ironman Arizona race directors, two great friends of mine, uh, just to be there to help support them, make sure they, you know, if they needed any help, we were there for them. That's what a partnership's all about, and that's what Hoka's all about. We're just not a shoe company where we're all in and, uh, you know, just uh, giving back and uh, just being there, you know, helping out at the start, helping out at the finish, uh, helping out with best practices. Ironman did a great job of uh, following all the COVID-19 guidelines. And so we want to see more races uh, in 2021. And so protocol was, uh, you know, carried out to the T and the athletes that wanted to be there played. They uh, kept the masks on and they entered the water, swam, bike, ran, had fun, and then were given a medal and masked up again and uh, onward. That's awesome. It's so great to hear that that race was a success. On another note, we get to talk to Ben Canoe today. I've actually only met Ben a handful of times at a couple of ITU races, and then we've crossed paths maybe at a couple of 70.3s. We got to chat a little bit at the Hoka Athlete Summit last December. And I'm really looking forward to checking in with him and hearing all about how he's approached this crazy year. Yeah, he's such a great young man. And he his passport is like unbelievable. He has so many frequent flyer miles. He's like uh, on a million uh, mile status, I think, uh, even at his young age. Junior elite national champion, and then uh, the collegiate champion, and then uh, second at uh, Ironman seventy point three worlds to Javier Gomez Noya. Just uh, you know, that's uh, quite a second place to Javier back a few years ago when uh, Chattanooga hosted the World seventy point three championship. Uh, he's done quite well. I've met his parents before. Uh, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Uh, well educated, uh, just a smart young man like his parents, and uh, yeah, uh, great guy. 100%. I'm also looking forward to asking Ben about some of the big life changes he's made recently mm. as well. He got married, became a dog dad, <laughs> and he and his wife Courtney are expecting a baby daughter in December, which is so exciting to add another little member to our Hoka family. But he's got a lot going on and has a ton of talent and big ambitions on the race course. Without further ado, we bring you Ben Canute. Ben Canute, welcome to the Chelsea and Eric show. We are yeah. so excited to have you here today. Welcome, Ben. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm excited. Yeah, this is awesome. We've really been looking forward to this and 
wondering how you are doing during this crazy year. It's been quite different than I'm sure you'd originally pictured. And so I'd love to hear how things have been for you. Yeah, it's been surprisingly busy over here. Um, started off with preparing for quite a few different races at the beginning of the year, um, then went to maintaining and seeing what was going to happen. And in that time, I mean, we got a puppy, we found out we were pregnant, we've moved houses over the summer, training has continued in between, and now it's looking like there might be a couple races on the horizon. So uh, just balancing life and training and racing. That's awesome. It sounds like it's definitely been busy, maybe a little unexpected, but what were your original goals going into this year before we were faced with this coronavirus? Yeah. Um, so the main goal was to qualify for the Olympics on the mixed team relay and win a medal uh, on that with that team and then also win the 70.3 world championships. And in preparing for that, had some other goals along the way, like winning my fourth Alcatraz title, defending my title at Oceanside. So still balancing the whole super sprint and 70.3 distances. But um, yeah, kind of those were the top two or three goals for the season. Wow. You know, I think a lot of us long course athletes really admire your versatility and ability to kind of toggle between super sprint, short course, draft legal racing, and this, you know, 70.3 non-draft stuff. How do you balance that? Thanks. I think it's uh, a little bit mental, a little bit physical. And um, we've, me and my coach, Jim Vance, have found a way to balance the training overall. And um, I don't know if it's some weird physiological thing I have going on where I can go really hard for the super sprint stuff and then just kind of like the, the grind of the half Ironman, um, but have found a, a good balance of working on speed, working on the high intensity, the kind of grit that that sort of racing has, and then applying that to the 70.3 and kind of vice versa. So I always like to say my strength is my strength. Um, so there's uh, a, a certain amount of strength that goes into a 20 minute race and sustaining a high intensity for that, uh, that long. And then obviously with the half Ironman distance, it's you have to be strong to be able to, to race for three hours and 45 minutes, four hours. Um, so I think that on the surface, it doesn't quite look intuitive to how they connect. But if you dig a little bit deeper, there's this kind of crossover there that we found. And I mean, frankly, now, like, you know, this racing the half Ironman distance, it's starting to almost look like a, an Olympic distance race now with a lot of people coming over um, from ITU and just people jumping in who are, are fast to begin with. Absolutely. You know, I think so many Ironman athletes look at you know, a sprint distance draft legal race. And they think, oh my gosh, they're going all out the whole time, which on some level you are, but you're still racing for an hour. That's still, yeah. you know, like an aerobic event. You have to be super strong, especially at the pointiest end of the field. But I think there are like skills that you definitely have to work on for, you know, ITU that you probably don't need to emphasize as much for, you know, long course. Yeah. And they're both kind of a, a game of, conserving energy, right? Like a, a half Ironman, you have to be very careful about pacing and your energy output. And the same thing is true for an Olympic or sprint distance race. It's just the dynamics of the race are different. And I think a lot of times the ITU athletes have um, a really good ability to do multiple all out spikes and then recover in between. And then like a, maybe a half Ironman specialist, they're very good at sustaining and not as big on the spiking in between. So I think a lot of times I tend to fall towards the, the half Ironman where I like a, a good hard effort throughout the entire race and kind of keep it sustained. And then, you know, with the, the short spikes, that's something that, you know, we've taken a step back and tried to improve as we're maintaining some of that strength work along with as you said, there's always that extra bike handling or riding close to people or making sure that transitions are extra quick in the sprint distance. 
you know, my hat's off to you because back in the day when I was young, uh, there were guys that were doing the Olympic uh, distance and then the half Ironman at the time, now 70.3, mm-hmm. and then the fulls. So you'd have Tinley and Dave Scott doing a, a race in Chicago, where you're from, at uh, Olympic distance, and then they'd run out and do a half, and then they'd do a full a few weeks later, just the way it was. They just race, race, race. And uh, you're really one of the only ones that is doing that right now. So uh, that's very, that's one of your awesome layers. Thanks. So you started when you were eight years old. Uh, Talk about your uh, parents uh, and the influence they had uh, with you getting into triathlon as a lad. Yeah, I think some of my earliest memories are of watching my dad race um, the Chicago Triathlon. It was Mrs. T's back in the day. And uh, I actually remember watching him go by on Lower Wacker Drive and um, went to the Lake Geneva Triathlon, um, went and watched him race the Ironman a few times. And um, that kind of stuck with me. And we were able, lucky enough to have uh, a local swim club and were encouraged to do that when we were young. And because Chicago has this kind of hotbed of triathletes, the age group team there uh, trickled over and my parents, along with some others, organized a kids triathlon um, at the local health and wellness center. And that was my opportunity at age eight and doing it in, uh, you know, just mountain bike, shoes, platform, pedals, just getting out and trying it. And I think that that was a really great experience. It was just going out, having fun and kind of pushing myself, uh, being like my dad and like my mom who took up triathlon too. And then uh, I'd say the most unique thing happened in that there was uh, a guy, Keith Dixon, who took the, he grew up in the swim programs early on and saw that you know, they were turning out a bunch of Olympians. So he took the the swim club, the USA swim club model of let's work hard, um, have that track toward Olympic, Olympic trials, because triathlon was relatively new in the Olympics at that point. And mm-hmm. um, kind of got together a, ki- a group of kids who ended up being, you know, really talented, hard workers. And I think we were among the first kids triathlon teams in the, the country. And now you see there's tons of them going around and it's hard to even get into the youth and junior elite racing scene. So the Geneva River Rats and the multi-sport maniacs would wa- walk through the Chicago Expo. And what would you smell in the air when you'd walk in the Expo? Oh, in the Expo. Well, I'd say if in the looking 90s. back, even to this, uh, to this day, if I'm up early in the morning and there's grass and you can smell the dew, that reminds me of a, a, a triathlon, like a transition area immediately and maybe I think pierogies maybe pierogies yeah, pierogies chicago dogs all that sort of good stuff you know you had this really competitive start in triathlon as a kid and i know you had a bit of early success but where did you think you were going with that did you have any plans to take it to the professional level I think as a young kid, I always, you always want to be a professional athlete because it just seems like the coolest job in the world. And, you know, it started off in, in baseball or uh, football or whatever, soccer. And I realized pretty quickly I was never going to go pro at baseball um, when they stuck me out in right field every time. And I realized that was where they stuck the kids who weren't as good as the other ones. So um, I think I peaked in third grade at baseball when our, our team um, not led by me, but by the other kids won the championship. Um, but what was cool about the kids triathlon team and the club swim teams that was, I was on, um, was they encouraged setting goals and they talked about this kind of staircase and or step ladder, whatever you want to call it, where you might be at whatever level right here, maybe just getting your a times or just racing the local races. But at the very top step is the Olympics. And the Olympics were talked about at a young age and it kind of instilled that dream in us. And, you know, when we were at practice, like it was kind of, it was said like, you know, you're, you're working towards that goal here. Like, yes, there's national championships or the next race, but really you're working toward that long-term goal. And that I think lit a fire under a lot of us and gave us that belief that, Hey, we could be an Olympian. We could race this sport. We could be a professional. And so that was always a goal. And my parents were good about encouraging that. But they also made sure I studied hard and followed the, my academic track, too, because you, you just can't always know if you're going to make it as a professional athlete and need kind of a, a fallback, I guess. But with their encouragement, I was able to just make each step and kind of take the, the next leap to, to each level. And 
yeah, thankfully I was able to, to follow it and had encouragement because was able to, to reach the level that I wanted to. Yeah, it's such a delicate balance, I think, with, you know, encouraging our kids and showing them what's possible, but also not putting too much pressure on them. And I think that you're kind of a rare, unique success story in triathlon of someone who came up through the whole youth ranks and then, you know, made it big time. So that's really been interesting to follow. Are there any mentors or like notable pieces of advice from this period in your life that stand out to you? It's got to be my parents, um, both my mom and my dad. I mean, taking me to swim practices, taking me to tri club practices and just giving me the guidance to help navigate, um, you know, just life in general, but also just like the sporting process, like keeping things in perspective. Um, I mean, I could go on and on about how they actually helped me, but they they helped instill in me a hard work ethic and put, uh, I guess, a good head on my shoulders where my dad was always there. He he grew up a, a golfer and had this um, golf on tape uh, that he would listen to, like the mental side of golf. And so he always used golf analogies, but was always good. Like we know when he starts pointing his hand at us uh, that he's getting into one of his like, this is how it goes. This is uh, like his whole kind of rant going on. So he's always been good. He still does that and still keeps my head on straight at times. And um, yeah, I think both my parents, like I, I wouldn't be where I am today without them for sure. So, you know, you had the River Rats and uh, you had your camaraderie amongst your teammates. But um, when you went to training and then racing, uh, when was it obvious? When did it get in your mind that, hey, you know, this could be my thing? And, uh, you know, was there a breakthrough moment, race, season? Um, That's a really good question. I think that, you know, I was lucky to have success and continued to grow as I moved up in the junior and youth series. Um, I had success in my last year as a a youth elite uh, triathlete and winning the national championships and was able to do that in junior elite. But I think the first time when I got a real taste of being a professional um, was when I first took my elite card. And I was actually not going to take it at all, but USAT encouraged me to because they were hosting a camp for new elites, old elites out in Europe to, to race there and get a feel for what international competition was. Because really the only experience I had was at junior races on the Pan-American level and then once a year at the Junior World Championships. So for me to go over there, race all sorts of different like prelim final races, super sprint, sprint, Olympic was really, really valuable. And it let me see that, hey, I... I'm on my way to being uh, a professional and I can compete, but I still have a long way to go. And I was able to come back and talk with my coach and figure out like, hey, what needs to be done? And that actually jump-started me on the Olympic track because from the points I got there um, and the credits I had gotten my freshman year and going into college, I realized I could be done in two years and kind of portrayed or kind of wrote out what I thought I could finish at some of these races and where my ranking would be and saw that all the stars were kind of aligning where I could have this extra year to train and try and qualify for the games. I really appreciate that meticulous approach to goal setting. You're probably what, like 18 or 19 years old when, when you went to Europe for the first time taking your elite license. Yeah. So that's a pretty mature uh, I don't think that I was capable of goal setting quite to that level when I was, you know, a freshman in college. Thanks. Well, I had people pushing me in the right direction too. I had, uh, again, my parents, my mom actually, she helped me out. Like navigating the ITU point system is not an easy thing. And we sat down and started doing that math along with like credit math for college and um, had people at USAT, you know, saying, hey, we have these coaches who are going out like, pretty much hop on this flight. Like a lot of the logistics were worked out early on, which I think is super valuable for people who are younger just to see like, okay, how do I set up going to a race or to a camp where I need to be successful? Because you don't always know what the missing piece is. um, And people want to help fill in those missing pieces, but it was valuable for me to go and be like, okay, so this is what the puzzle looks like. Like they put it together for me and then I can help now like when I move on, I know what I need to to kind of create a successful camp race campaign or or whatever. Right. And having that 
team of people around you. I found in such an individual sport, like triathlon is so pivotal in Mm -hmm. guiding the journey and making sure that, you know, you're successful and you actually switching gears a little bit, you change coaches after the Rio Olympics and started working with Jim Vance, who it seems has been, you know, a great fit for you. I'd love to hear about that kind of decision process and why it's been such a great match. Yeah, I so I worked with, um, I, I guess I'll start kind of from the beginning and how I always kind of switch from one coach to the next or when I had to make that decision. And uh, it started back on the kids team. I just saw that I was moving in a different direction of them, um, wanted a little bit more attention because there were some other I guess, stars on the team and I was doing uh, high school swimming and cross country. So I was kind of coming in a bit late and just realized um, if I want to go where I want to, like I need a coach that's taken a little bit more time for me. And so I worked with him, Adam Zuko, for a number of years all through college and um, worked with Ryan Bolton, like with my run a lot. And he kind of shifted as the Olympics came in with his experience. He took over more of a role as I went into Rio and, and in qualifying and um, had some really great races, but I just felt like there was nothing that was wrong necessarily. There was just a part of me that was curious. I, I just felt like I needed some sort of change. I'd been essentially with the same coach for a number of years, um, felt that some of my training was better than my racing and just started kind of exploring and figuring out, okay, what what am I looking for in a coach? And had this list of, uh, I mean, it could have been 20 or 30 names of literally every possible coach combination with the one that I was currently working with on there too. And just started comparing and looking. And I'd known Jim for a number of years uh, from when I was a youth and junior athlete and he was coaching his youth and junior team. Um, He'd worked with uh, some of my old coaches too. um, And, you know, I sat down with him and just started talking and I really liked his approach in using workouts and data to provide confidence and know that you're ready on the start line. And also he really thought that uh, all of the work we were, I was doing uh, was really good. We just were going to institute in more rest and make sure that, you know, I was letting my fitness do the talking at the race and I wasn't getting in the way of myself. So it was really a hard decision to leave the coach who essentially got me to the Olympics and had a a pretty successful Olympic campaign. Um, But I think there was just something in me that kind of knew, like, I just need a change of perspective. And I I wanted to go and look out and just see what was out there. And it just so happened that I found somebody who met my specific criteria of being able to like live and train where I wanted not having to leave like a home base for nine months out of the year and and live in Europe or um, somewhere else and just had like a a good philosophy and somebody who I could trust and just be open with and have a communication and not where some coaches are like my way or the highway. It was, I can have a conversation and kind of say like, Hey, this is, I think this should be applied to the training and he can explain why or why not. Well said. Yeah, Adam and Ryan are great coaches. And a lot of times people get the misconception, you know, and these guys are friends. I talked to Jim yesterday, as a matter of fact, and, you know, they all talk to each other and uh, still are friends. So it just it speaks to the coaches that do have a functional relationship. Uh, You had you had a big year, you know, last year. If uh, if, uh, you know, mentor says, you know, don't change jobs, move, get married, have a kid, have a puppy, etc. You know, these are just do one of the five or six things. And of course, you know, you just jumped into about four things. You, you know, you've Tucker, yeah. the uh, super puppy coming up and that's good, you know, because you're going to be a dad soon. So you'll be able to, you know, equate the being a dad to being a dog dad. Um, but, you know, talk about Jim. And he said that he slowed you down. He said that, you are making it easy on your competition because as we've heard so far in this podcast, everything is well thought out and you speak it into existence. You write goals and you hit your goals. And Jim said, slow down. So he's optimized you. So talk about that. And yes, there are some coaches that do want you to move near them or it's my way or the highway, as you said. Talk about Jim and the just the way that he goes about talking to you about and the numbers, the data. Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me was that I was working really hard, 
but I wasn't giving myself enough rest before a lot of the races. I was doing, whether it was altitude camps or just uh, at home, I was doing volume and intensity, and I just hadn't really nailed down the race week just yet. I don't think that um, with all of the work that I was doing, there wasn't enough recovery in between some of the blocks or before some of the races, and um, I wasn't performing the same way that I was training, I guess. And this has come after reflecting on this for a long time. It's harder to see that in the moment. But what Jim was able to do is we we still do really hard weeks. We still do a lot of volume at times. We do a lot of intensity. But his kind of general rule of thumb is if you can't take two days of light or rest and then come back that third day and be able to put in a hard day's work or be race ready, then you're probably overtraining a little bit. And in using that general rule of thumb, we've been able to prevent, um, you know, certain injuries or overtraining or just be able to be ready for um, the next block or the next race cycle. So obviously there's some periodization that goes in there and we're always very successful after having like a, a few weeks to prepare for, for a camp and everything right before a big race. But the way that we structure everything is just to really emphasize like letting the body soak up all the training, which I think as a young athlete, it can be difficult too to take a step back and um, not rest because you just think more is more and I, I got to do everything that I can keep pushing myself. And it's easy to kind of find yourself on the edge of doing just a bit too much. Definitely. Tell us a little bit about your training in 2020 and how maybe that's been different to the past couple of years as you've had such a full race calendar you've been gearing up for world championships and an itu series how has this year kind of evolved right so at the beginning of the year obviously we were preparing for a full season and the quarantining and the cancellation of races only just started in march uh, and that was just canceling so from March until about April or so, or maybe even May, we took a lot of time to just maintain our fitness and just be ready for a race if it came. So um, then once we hit that and we realized, okay, there may not be any racing this year, or maybe way down the line, we started to view it as an opportunity to train a little bit different, work on the run a bit more, work on some intensity work, not really have to have volume, especially in the bike or the swim super high, uh, because we didn't have to be race ready for the entire year. So we could take a little bit more focus on um, what I think some people might call a weakness for me, just my run and just kind of really focus in on trying to improve that and take that extra time. And it worked out pretty well because the summer in Phoenix is pretty brutally hot. And um, I was able to basically get workouts done in the crack of dawn and make sure that I was not out in the heat for too long and didn't have to worry about putting in six hours of training or four hours of training a day. Um, and then as kind of the, the races started to pop back up on the calendar, we've now started to shift into more specific training for those races. So um, while there aren't a ton of them, I think uh, everybody's seen like the, the one race, like Challenge Daytona is, is one that a lot of people are going to, and that's kind of what we're focusing on. But definitely ready, we were ready for a half Ironman. If that ever popped up, we were ready for some Olympic distance racing. So this year has just been kind of like a, a work on some weaknesses and then let's try and find some fitness for if and when racing happens for the end of the year. And then our due dates on December 15th. So at that point, the season ends and then it's all just, you know, sleepless nights and playing with our baby. You mentioned working on weaknesses a little bit and how your run has been an area of growth for you. I was listening to another podcast that you did and you said that you don't think that your running is at the same level of some of the fleet footed ITU guys that are running 29 minutes off the bike. I think that our listeners would be really curious to, you're a world-class athlete, Ben. You're really strong across all three disciplines. So it's interesting for people to hear you say that about yourself and how you still have a lot of room for improvement in your game. What are some of the kind of specific things in training that you do to work on that weakness? So for us, like I like we talked about at the beginning, I'm trying to balance this super sprint and then half Ironman 
type training. So at the super sprint, it takes really high intensity, fast turnover, um, basically 1500 meter and 3k speed. So we spent time working on threshold running and just fast running for uh, like five by three minutes, five by five minutes, uh, that sort of thing, and working on getting my threshold pace lower and lower. And economy is a big portion of that too, where um, I've worked with Bobby McGee for a number of years, and I like to call him the running guru. Um, he's always really good at spotting, um, I guess, weaknesses in your form and finding ways to whatever, whether it's opening up the hip angle or foot strike, um, cadence, all of that. It's, it's taking a look at those details and applying it. Cause when you're looking at like, a let's say like a four to nine minute run race, there's every little second counts in that. And then when we work on that, that starts to apply to the half Ironman. So right now we're doing more sustained, longer runs, um, working on strength. And I like to call it thrempo running where it's not really tempo. Uh, it's not really super cruisy, but it's not this threshold like fast as I can go. It's this kind of gray area to hit that half marathon, even slightly shorter than that. And I think that's the faster running and the more efficient running from there has helped me build up that good form that helps me sustain that longer. Cause in the past, like you look at me five years back, seven years back, um, when I would hit the wall in the run, you could tell, like my run form was super ugly. I would rock back and forth. I would try and just, my strength would try and come through and save me and I'd just try and muscle through it. Whereas now I'm, I feel like I've come to a place where um, my form is much more efficient and when I hit the wall, it's a lot less dramatic. So that's kind of been just chipping away at that over the years. It's almost like that shorter distance stuff raises your ceiling yeah. for the long, the long, you know, 70.3 distance. Yeah. And that 70.3 distance gives you that strength. Like you look at middle distance runners or people who run a 5k, they do huge mileage weeks to be able to run fast on the track. It's kind of that same philosophy too. And, uh, it's just balancing that. And this year we've been able to increase the run mileage just a little bit and do a little bit more because we didn't have to err on the safe side to be ready for the races that were on the calendar. And also like in like the swim training and bike training, you didn't have to focus on that as much. So it's been nice to just be able to focus a little bit on purely running a little, I guess, um, with, with a little bit of other stuff mixed in. So um, currently right now, I'm seeing a little bit more of a normal training cycle. Um, with the opportunity to race. So it it's starting to feel, I guess, a little bit more normal of a training cycle. Yeah, Thrempo, Thrempo, uh, the Thrempo, I love that. That's sort of like, I think uh, Chelsea's dad and myself would call that fartlek back in the day about 30 years ago. Yeah. So, you know, talk about this because uh, not only are you balanced in your short course and long course uh, and going at it, but, um, you know, from the neck up stuff, uh, your mental game. Um, so when you're looking at a race, like no matter what distance it is, um, it's a large chunk of time, even if the race is only 20 minutes long, five minutes long and, um like when the race is shorter, I think it's there, you experience pain and, uh, the, the hardness of racing a lot earlier on. Um, and then for maybe a, a longer race, you, you might get to that point really fast, or it might become challenging, you know, halfway through and you still have two hours left. So I, I, I like to break down the race with triathlon. It's easy. You could do swim, bike, run, and then the transitions, but then even break that down even further. And to make it easy, like the swim, I like to break it down first buoy, you know, where am I going to be at for those next couple ones? How am I moving up? Like, what are some of the opportunities to conserve energy or, you know, take advantage of some of my strengths and have other people, um, you know, put some time into some other people. And then I start thinking about, you know, what am I going to do as I get closer to swim out the checkpoint of transition one? Um, and then, you know, the bike is easy to break down too, cause you have to fuel during the bike drinking. So I just take it and break it down, you know, into as short a segments as I want. And by the end of the race, those segments might only be a minute or two long, if not 30 seconds, just to get yourself to that next checkpoint. So I always try and make everything as, as manageable mentally as possible. And plus it gives you good process goals to be able to work on stuff in between and keeps you in the moment 
rather than thinking too far ahead and um, I guess predicting the race for yourself. In regards to obviously you swim, bike and run on Jim Vance's recommendations as a coach, you do your homework on his recommendations. Do you seek an advisor you know, in regards to neck up stuff? And there's two parts of that. Not only what you just mentioned about the planning of the race, but also just the positive thinking. Yes, I started working with a sports psychologist back uh, in 2015 after the Rio test event, because that was probably one of the worst races I've ever had. And I had some of the best training I ever had before that race. And I was just trying to find, you know, check all my boxes and try and figure out what was going on. And um, he really helped direct my focus into, I think you can, I, I don't want to oversimplify things, but I think you can sum a lot of stuff up in focusing on your own race, what you're doing, how you can be the best and getting the best race out of yourself, uh, or just being your best self is how I like to kind of do it. Even if we're not talking about racing, but just having success regardless of what others are doing or regardless of what else is going on. So I think that that's kind of another big thing is when I break down that race, I'm setting almost mini goals for myself, those process goals so that um, I can have, you know, a race that on paper, like you could take my fourth place at the 2018 half Ironman world championships as uh, coming after being second place the year before. Um, on paper, you're like, ah, I did worse. But in fact, like, I think that was probably one of my best executed races that I've ever had. And, um, against some of like the best triathletes in the world. So, um, I walked away from that race, like pretty darn happy and like really proud of myself and, and looked at it and looked back and was like, I don't really think I could have done anything to have improved over that day. Now I can be kind of nitpicky and I'm sure I can find some stuff and I did, but um, overall, like that's kind of the point behind it. And like, you have those outcome goals, but really focusing in the moment and having those, the breakdown of the race and what you're doing in it and the execution of it has been a really big part of, you know, I guess the, the mental side, the, the shoulders up, as you say, for the past, um, like four or five years now. That's such a great attitude, you know, because we can't control who shows up to the start line, mm -hmm what kind of fitness other people have, we can only control what we're doing. And, you know, I think people walk away from races disappointed, like quite frequently because they didn't focus on what they could control. They got so wrapped up in what was going on around them. And so I feel like that will serve you very well for the next decade or however long Thanks. you want to keep on racing. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So what, what would you say has been the biggest like disappointment or obstacle you've had to overcome in your career? Oh, well, I think I just kind of touched on it. That Rio test event um, was shaping up to be, was supposed to be, I guess, the way that I was viewing it going in. I felt like everybody was like, oh, Ben should crush this race. And he should, it's an ocean swim. Uh, that's kind of perfect for him. Um, it's a hilly hard bike. Probably a breakaway is going to happen. Uh, and then the run is pretty flat and straightforward. So nothing really to think about except to just kind of get through it. And the breakaway is probably going to be far enough ahead that you could probably automatically qualify under like the USAT qualification rules at the time. Um, and I think some of that pressure and then maybe not hitting the taper right exactly, but like, oh, it was, it was a terrible race. I went backwards in the swim, which I've never really had happen before. Uh, the bike, I hardly made it over the first hill. Uh, considered dropping out at that point, um, but hung in there and hoped for the best. And then basically just jogged the run, just couldn't get any turnover going and was just uh, just kind of really confused as to what happened with like the whole race being a disaster. Um, but that was like a big turning point for me um, with that disappointment is like, that's where I stepped up and I'm like, all right, like I want to take the pressure off of qualifying for the games. Like if I do, I do. If I don't, okay. And um, went into those next few qualification races with a bit of a di different attitude and just like pushing myself and having fun and ended up racing a lot better than when I was like, I have to qualify or, oh man, like kind of having that extra pressure on myself. Yeah. And that makes, that's why you're so good at what you do, right? Because rather than like wallowing that disappointment, you were really able to like have an attitude adjustment, learn from whatever mistakes were made or just get over a bad day, right? And yeah. move on to the next thing. 
Yeah, definitely. So it's it's never easy having a bad race and especially one like that uh, where it means a lot. But yeah, my dad always used to tell me there's always another race and the rate you think whatever race you're doing is the most important one. But people tend to move on pretty quick from the last race, too. Yeah, and to have disappointment, you must have had expectations. And what, what are your expectations going on for next year in Tokyo 2021? And uh, can you explain to us uh, the different formats, the individual and the relay that you're competing to be in? Yeah, the individual race is pretty much the, the format that you're used to seeing if you watch the Olympics every four years, where it's Olympic distance race, 1500 meter swim, 40K bike, 10K run. Uh, draft legal. So we'll probably have some big packs on the bike. It's going to be hot in Tokyo from what I've seen um, and from when I was there. Well, the relay is the new addition and it goes uh, girl, guy, girl, guy, and everybody does a super sprint triathlon. Um, and I'm estimating the distances here just slightly where it's about a 300 meter swim, um, about a 8K, 7K bike, and then a 2K run. And you just tag off to the next person. They do their super sprint and go on. And the U.S. team has had a really good track record in the relay. And I've been able to be a part of um, multiple, I guess, international relays with them at the World Championships and have won um, uh, a few medals with them as well. So that's kind of been the focus. And, you know, if I'm, I'm going back to another Olympics, if I get selected, I really want a shot at winning a medal. And I think that the U.S. stands a good chance to. So I always like to say I go into every race, like not expecting a win, but shooting for the win. And then again, like just going out and trying to get the best out of myself. So um, there's still six months left of uh, qualifying um, period, I guess. And it's obviously had to be adjusted a little bit and it'll be interesting to see because there will definitely be some discretionary selection with the U.S. team, especially for the men. So it will be interesting to follow along, I think, for how people are racing next year, especially getting into May and then how the selectors decide to pick um, for individual versus uh, especially the relay. And just one final note on that is the U.S. team can only have a total of uh, three men overall, and those three men can race in the individual and the relay. You can't have separate people for just the relay and the individual. So it's three men max for all triathlon races. Yeah, well, discretionary is always ticky-tacky, but you have played in the system since you were eight years old. So if the discretionary people stick to the standards they've kept from that beginning of that sticky uh, situation where you get into the discretionary appointments, uh, I believe you got everything it takes to be there from working the system since you were young to be able to do individual and the relay. So I think you got that going for you. And if you don't get in, I'm going to make a call and uh, Colorado <laughs> Springs will know I'm on Thanks. the phone. Is that unsettling for you, not knowing exactly what the criteria is to go to the games? Um, well, I, I guess it's only not knowing it in the fact of um, there's no automatic for me. I, there is, but like the way that we've gone about it is trying to prove that I'm the best asset to the relay. I feel that my resume, if you lay me down and, and next to everybody else, I feel that I've made a, a really strong case for myself. I, I don't know if I've made a case for myself where it's like, you know, obvious. It could still be pretty difficult depending on how a committee likes to look at it. But uh, I guess the best, like I've just tried to look at it as I'm just racing the best I can. And I feel that my results and my resume speaks for itself. And I just have to hope that the selectors see me as a, a good candidate. And you know what, like, it's not the end of the world if they don't. I had that same mentality of if I qualified or not going into Rio. And I think that that was a healthy way to look at it because, you know, there's other races, obviously the Olympics is huge and you want to be a part of it and you want to win a medal, but I thankfully have kind of a lot going on, um, a lot of different racing, a lot of different, um, goals. So while the Olympics is one of them, like I just have to keep plugging away at the ones that I can and let discretionary selections play out how they play out. Absolutely. Controlling the controllables, yeah, as they say, sure. especially during this year. For sure. What about the full Ironman? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. Um, there's no uh, official date 
but um, who knows? You never know. Every year it becomes a better possibility, I think. So it's definitely on the horizon for me, but um, I'm just trying to take it one step at a time. And there's a lot of things that I like to race right now, and it gets pretty difficult to race some of those as you go longer. Um, so everything from, you know, Escape from Alcatraz up to Half Ironman and down to Super Sprint. So I like the versatility and I like doing all those different distances and Ironman takes a special type of focus. So um, we'll see. That's definitely, um, it's definitely there and it gets talked about. Were both of you going to do Oceanside? Yeah. We were. Yeah, me too. So it was going to be the three of us. Yeah, the old man and yeah. the two <laughs> prodigies. It was going to be a party. Oh man, yeah. there's a podium right here. All right. That's right. <laughs> oh man. Hey, Ben, one of the things about your racing style is it's all out and fearless. I've seen you out there at Oceanside and in San Francisco and, you know, you go at it, uh, fearless. Uh, you're, you're in the front and your tactics. Um, when did you start racing like this? What does Jim think of it after you were through with Adam and Ryan? And, you know, um, where'd you get this inspiration of just going for it? Your intellect, your speed, ability, your volume of oxygen, your VO2 max, all your pain, uh, the decision to be okay with being in pain for that long. You were almost like the perfect storm. But talk about that being out front mentality. Thanks. I think I've always had it. Yeah, I think coaches are always telling me to slow down or don't take those risks or just settle down a little bit, um, especially in the ITU stuff, because it doesn't always pay to just keep launching attacks off the front when there's 20 other guys like chasing you down. But yeah, I, I raced like that even when I was a youth and junior. Uh, I think it was encouraged just because um, the fields were relatively small and I had a really good swim background. So I was able to take guys out of the race uh, pretty early on. And I just love to ride the bike hard. So I think it just came naturally to me. And yeah, I would say my racing strategy is not a secret to anybody. So everybody knows I'm going to push right from the beginning. And I just like it. It motivates me to be at the front of the race and to, to lead from the beginning. So um, yeah, I mean, it's and it, it plays to my strength. And in half Ironman, especially, I think that it pays to, to put people to, to make them chase right from the beginning and have me take control of the race and take them out of their plan. So Jim is all for it. Uh, we've just kind of worked our way and, and plan kind of around that sort of race strategy. There's never really been a talk of me, you know, sitting back and not pushing the swim or just chilling on the bike or anything like that. Cause you have to race to your strengths. And I think that that's what my race strategy does. Do you enjoy hurting your competition or do you mind, you know, do you mind that at all? Yeah, I think so. But I think I also enjoy hurting myself in that way. And I, I enjoy the suffering. Um, but yeah, I think that it fuels me too to, to know like, okay, yeah, I'm suffering, but these guys are also suffering super hard. So um, I just love to race. I'm, I'm really competitive. And um, yeah, it's just, it's motivating to be in a, a race environment. Ben, moving on to our quick fire round, we're going to ask you some, no pressure. We're going to ask you some like quick, short answer questions. So let's see what you've got. Are you ready? Yeah, as you can see, I'm not the best with short answer, but I'll give it a go. That's okay. We'll forgive you. All right. Favorite journey? As in like trip? I think the Island House Triathlon. That is the favorite journey so far. Favorite sound? Oh, rain in the desert. Nice. What's your favorite mantra or saying as you're training or out there putting everyone in the hurt locker? You know what? I'm, I like mantras, but I don't really have a, a specific one. Um, I always kind of like the one of uh, shock and awe. Um, that's one that sometimes comes up just because I think that that kind of goes along with my um, race strategy in that you know people expect me to blow up or people expect me to not be able to sustain it and um you know it's getting to the point where people aren't always shocked but i think it still does shock them sometimes when you know i don't i don't fade you get one style of hokas to wear for the rest of your life which style do you choose I know this is quick fire, but that's a tough one. Um, I'm going to go the Rocket X's because, yeah, they're fast and I can just wear those all day. First thing you want to do when we get out of this COVID uh, woods, 
the lifestyle? What are we going to do? Show off my baby. Nice. Well, Ben, you know, it's been great. Uh, years ago, as always, I check in with uh, my barometer of talent, the great legend of Iron Man and etc., Bob Babbitt. And he tells me about this kid from Chicago, Ben Canood. And then I keep watching you and we get you over to other races in San Francisco. And I saw you in Oceanside. And it's been just great to watch you develop and uh, grow. And uh, I just see your bell curve beginning. So uh, it's great to have you as a sponsored athlete like Chelsea. Uh, I believe in both of you too, and I know we're going to see great things out of you in the next thousand days when things get back to normal. We're so happy to have you on the pod, Ben. Super excited for you for the next couple of months with some big races and baby Canute coming. So thanks so much for coming on the Chelsea and Eric show. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It was a ton of fun. Awesome. You're great, Ben. We wish you the best. Wow, what a great interview, Chelsea. Ben is so thoughtful and fun to talk to. Totally. He really does it all, and with a lot of class, from Super Sprint to 70.3, he's such a versatile athlete. I really loved hearing about his approach and everything, from the training and also to his mental game. Yeah, definitely, and it even got more exciting when he's uh, you know thinking about going to the full Ironman one day, so within the next uh, few years, we'll see that. I uh, cannot wait to watch him take that aggressive style to the big island of Kona and the Ironman distance. I completely agree. I'm so impressed by his approach to the sport. You can tell that he's a student of his craft and completely immersed in his yep. process. What do you think the amateurs can take away from an interview with Ben? I think uh, go hard and see how hard you can go and uh, figure out when you are going to blow up and push your limits and, you know, don't always stay in a comfort level because some people are gifted with an anaerobic threshold that they don't know is there unless you push it. So, you know, he pegs it, he pushes it all the way into the red zone, stays there as long as he has and he blows up. If he blows up, he blows up. But uh, if he doesn't, he wins. I couldn't have said it better for myself. You know, sometimes you have to take big risks to reap the big rewards. And definitely, you know, Ben has won on those massive stages. Yep, that is what it's all about. Well, that was great. Uh, a great conversation with another great friend on the Chelsea and Eric show. And we've got more interviews coming your way. Please subscribe to the Chelsea and Eric show. Brought to you by Hoka One One and Iron Man.